Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm Max Burns, sitting in for John Fugelsang tonight. There is nowhere I'd rather be on a Thursday evening than talking through this day with all of you. And boy, do we ever have some group therapy to get through after this crazy, crazy day. And things are popping off. I mean it, guys. Everything is happening right now, and I'm going to do my best to get to all of it. I'll be here with you for the next three hours as we break down the biggest stories in our political world, along with a healthy dose of important news that fell through the cracks. Though I don't know how on earth we're going to get to it today. And of course, I'm going to do it with you and your calls. Give us a call, 866-997-4748. That's 866-997-GRIT. So call in tonight of all nights, this unexpectedly busiest political night of the year so far, as my sister would say. Oh, my goodness. So how about we get to some quick headlines? Congresswoman Kathy McMorris Rogers, the Washington Republican, soon to be former congresswoman. That's after the rising Republican power broker announced that she wouldn't seek reelection. McMorris Rogers is just the latest Republican to go running for the hills as it becomes increasingly clear that the GOP is losing the House in November. I mean, I think even they've accepted that by now. McMorris Rogers, probably most famous for fighting to keep the price of insulin artificially high. And coincidentally, also one of the lawmakers who took the most money from the pharmaceutical industry. So good riddance, Kathy. Uh, a Pennsylvania Moms for Liberty chapter that once boasted over 200 members and had Republican candidates in Pennsylvania urging people to read more Hitler has closed. The last three dues-paying members decided to disband after internal rivalries split the group apart. That's coming from the Daily Beast. One mom said, quote, between homeschooling and working two jobs, it's a lot. Yeah, I'll give her that. It's tough to do the required Hitler reading when your day is filled with indoctrinating your kids into QAnon. The people of Lehigh County are going to have to get their hate somewhere else now, I guess. 
And over in the right wing drama verse, former presidential attorney Rudy Giuliani now says Trump owes him millions of dollars for his many, many attempts to overturn the 2020 election in court. Giuliani told a federal bankruptcy court today he wouldn't be broke if he had chosen not to work for Trump, to which I can only add. Yeah, makes sense. That scans. Whatever, Rudy. Time to pay that $148 million defamation judgment. Now, folks, I am always thrilled to be here with you, but I'm also thrilled to be joined at the controls by two of the best in the business. We have, of course, Chris Hosselt, executive producing with his unmistakable flair and passion. We have Thea Harper producing the show from Brooklyn. And I'm, as always, coming to you live from Manhattan, where global warming is in full effect, and it's actually pretty nice out. That's going to be less fun, probably, when it's 114 degrees in August. But hey, the far right gets short-sighted about this stuff. Why can't I be? So let me tell you, I was talking to the team about this earlier, and we have a really, really good show for you tonight. This is going to be the show that ends my unbroken streak of mediocrity. And I'll tell you why. It's because I've got some of the best guests out there tonight, and they're going to shine their insight on everything that's happening. This hour, I'm sitting down with the ever-insightful Joe Walsh to talk about Democrats' tough talk on the border and everything else. Then at 10 p.m., I'm joined by author Jared Yates Sexton. He's going to give us the latest on what's happening with the GOP and democracy. And at 11, definitely stick around for this. I'm talking to iconic D.C. reporter Brian Karam about all things Trump and the courts and why this is going to be an issue that matters to everyone a lot sooner than you think. But right now, I want to get to milestones. And, you know, I got an email. Chris will love this. I got an email after I guest hosted the show back in December, and it said, Max, I don't agree with any of your politics, but I love your milestones, so you always have a listener for the first 10 minutes. I guess, you know, that's, that's all we can hope for. So since we have a ton to cover, just one milestone for you, but it's a doozy. It was on February 8th, 1968, when 10 police officers opened fire on a crowd of black students at South Carolina State College in Orangeburg. It injured 28, killed three. This was the first time in American history that police had ever opened fire on a student protest. It was three months before Kent State. You should know this, but it's invisible. The shooting, it came two days after sit-in protests at the All-Star Bowling Alley, which was segregated, where a handful of students had been arrested for refusing to leave. The arrests led to a huge protest response. And by the end of the day, hundreds of people were marching outside the bowling alley. South Carolina Governor Bob McNair called up the National Guard and the state police to get control. And of course, the cops de-escalated the same way they always do, by shooting as many of the student protesters as they could, even admitting during the later investigation that many of those students were unarmed and running away. Three men died in what became known as the Orangeburg Massacre, Sam Hammond, Delano Middleton, and Henry Smith. The Department of Justice swung hard on the police in South Carolina. They charged nine officers with civil rights violations, some of the first of their kind, only to see a jury acquit all nine. The violence led to so much public shame heaped on South Carolina that the entire town of Orangeburg ended up desegregating almost immediately afterwards. But it wasn't until uh, 2001, 2001, that the protesters received a formal apology from Governor Jim Hodges, even though by that point, many of the students who were involved had died. What's important to remember about this is not just the massacre itself, but how the media 
got it so terribly wrong. The Associated Press incorrectly reported that the students were armed and firing at police. That was false. But the AP never retracted the story. Time magazine didn't even consider the shooting newsworthy enough to cover. The governor of South Carolina blamed Martin Luther King and called them insurrectionists. And in the heat of all of this, there's a young guy named John Lewis. He stood up and he said, hey, the media is lying about what happened in Orangeburg. And John Lewis, along with the NAACP and a whole constellation of progressive writers and reporters, actually succeeded in getting the truth out there. That didn't bring any justice to the police or to the people who were killed or injured, but it got the truth put forward. The American people, I think, have largely forgotten about what happened in Orangeburg. And I hate to tell you, friends, but forgetting is complicity. Ignorance is complicity. It helps those like today's Republicans who want to whitewash our country's racial history and the indefensible abuses put on black Americans and other marginalized people. If you're just hearing about Orangeburg for the first time from me, now you have the obligation to tell two people. And they have an obligation to tell two people. Because that's the only way that we push back against institutional lies that have kept us from reckoning with America's past forever. I'm curious. I want to know if you knew something about the Orangeburg massacre before this, or if this is something that's new to you. Uh, give us a call, 866-997-4748. Let me know also if there's a milestone you're marking that I unfortunately was not able to get to. Now, the reason we're, we're cutting this short is that this was a big day for Donald Trump. The former president's attorneys were over at the Supreme Court today doing what they do best, basically making stuff up and hoping nobody noticed. Now, they were arguing that Colorado, which threw Trump off the ballot, doesn't have the right to do that. Now, that's weird, because according to John Roberts, all the courts and all of the elections and all of the deciding who's eligible, that's a job for the states. So sure, I bet you there was a, a good response there. Now, there's a lot going on here, starting with the fact that Trump's attorney in this case, Jonathan Mitchell, is better known for writing Texas's abortion bounty hunter law. That's the one that pays your neighbors to spy on you and turn you in if they suspect you're aiding someone in getting an abortion. But there's another interesting character here, too, and that's the law firm representing Colorado. They're represented by Jason Murray, who's maybe the only guy working today who clerked for both a Democrat and a Republican on the Supreme Court. He clerked for Elena Kagan on the left, Neil Gorsuch on the right. And you could tell from the opening moments of today's oral arguments that John Roberts would rather have been anywhere else in the world because he knows the Supreme Court's legitimacy is already in trouble. And yet he contended with what may have been the most shameless display of Republican partisanship I have ever seen. Here's Samuel Alito playing defense attorney for Trump in one of his more shameless career lowlights. Section three refers to the holding of office, not running for office. And so mm -hmm. if a state or Congress were to go further and say that you can't run for the office, you can't compete in a primary, wouldn't that be adding an additional qualification for serving for president? You must have been uh, free from this disqualification at an earlier point in time than Section three specifies. I think. Now, what you're hearing there is Samuel Alito creating a legal argument that Trump's attorneys didn't think to make and literally 
breadcrumb walking them to ask a question to him that he can use as a platform to push forward this, this insane idea. But let's be clear. I'm not a lawyer. I'm no Dean Obadala, but I listened to the whole oral argument and I was stunned at how Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, Alito, all of them essentially stopping Trump's attorneys mid-sentence and saying, hey, aren't you trying to say this? Isn't this a better argument? I mean, you could not have offered more help if Barrett and Kavanaugh and the rest of them had stepped down from the bench, put on Team Trump jerseys, and just argued the case themselves. Here's something Dean Obadala and I agree on, because we tweeted it actually about 30 seconds apart. The Republicans on the court, they're clearly trying to shoot this down using the same bogus argument they used to overturn Roe v. Wade back in June of 22. We heard Clarence Thomas run lead on this whole thing. Thomas told the attorneys for Colorado that states don't have the power to determine who can appear on their ballots because there isn't, quote, a tradition of that in American history. There were people who felt very strongly about uh, retaliating against the South, the radical Republicans. Uh, but they did not think about authorizing the South to disqualify national candidates. And that's the argument you're making. And what I would like to know is, you give, is uh, do you have any examples of this? Many of those historians have filed briefs in our support in this case, making the point that the, the, the idea of the 14th Amendment was that both states and the federal government would ensure rights, and that if states failed to do so, the federal government certainly would also step in. But I think the reason why there aren't examples of states doing this is an idiosyncratic one of the fact that elections worked differently back then. States have a background power under Article II and the 10th Amendment to run presidential elections. They didn't use that power to police ballot access until about the 1890s. And by the 1890s, everyone had received amnesty and these issues had become moot. I mean, think about that, that this is invalid in Clarence Thomas and Republicans' mind, because in their argument of this, it hasn't happened before. Yeah, Clarence, that's the point, buddy. Thomas and Alito have basically said you can't remove someone as a presidential candidate because no state has done it for the very good reason that until now, no candidate for president has actively incited an insurrection against the country. Well, congratulations, I guess. It took just a couple years for the court's Republican supermajority to decide that actually the insurrection clause doesn't really mean anything at all. Boy, that's sure convenient. Now, there's another thing here that drives me nuts. One of the biggest critics of Colorado's case was Chief Justice John Roberts. And this is the same John Roberts who gutted the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965 because he said repeatedly that the federal government has no right to intrude on how states manage their own elections. It's in the Constitution, he said. All the power is with the states. Well, square that with the John Roberts who sat in court today and said, actually, when it involves holding a Republican accountable for inciting an insurrection, that's the one area where states actually have no power over their election. Funny. It's always funny. John Roberts, a funny guy. He never mentioned that at any point before today's hearing. It certainly doesn't fit into what he claims is his judicial ideology. It doesn't show up in any of the rulings he's issued supporting stripping federal power from elections in the decade since. For this Supreme Court, though, State power has always been unlimited when it's used to suppress the votes of black Americans and reinforce the GOP Southern majority. 
But that same state power evaporates like water off an engine block when you follow rules that would hurt Republicans. I don't know, guys. I get the feeling the Supreme Court may not be the honest broker that they're telling us they are. Let me know if you guys out there follow these hearings today. 866-997-4748. And like I said, I try to avoid the legalese. I'm not a lawyer. But even as a non-expert, it's pretty clear things did not go well for democracy today. I want to jump to the phones really quickly. Uh, Sean from California has some thoughts on Johnny Roberts. Sean, how are you? Hey, Brother Max. Well, yeah, great observation. You know, the first thing that came to my mind is, yes, all politicians in robes. Now, they all have to sound smarter than everyone in the world, right? Or at least in our country, because it's the Supreme Court. Now, Thomas got his ass handed to him by a young buck, you know, the attorney for Colorado. It just made him look stupid. I, I know I'm biased. But he made him look stupid. The point here is John Roberts was talking about there's some broad, and I'm paraphrasing, some broad definition of insurrection so we could talk to everybody, right? Are you shitting me? Here's the broad definition of insurrection. Watch the video, John Roberts. Watch the video. Did you not see the guy telling everyone to go to the Capitol? Go there. We're not going to stand for this. Fight, fight, fight. And then what did they do? They went there and did that. What the fuck else is an insurrection to stop the counting of the votes? Change, try to change the results of the election by force. I think it's... Uh, I mean, I mean, and the I reality... Yes. Like what's so fascinating to me about it is even other Republicans are on camera in, in the midst of January 6th calling it an insurrection. They're, they're yes. explicitly trying to pass legislation to say it isn't to cover for the fact that they already have declared it an insurrection. But apparently for the Supreme Court, all these textualists, words don't really mean anything. Well, that I think that's why they're all full of it, the federal society. And by the way, one of those people who did say it is fooling many of the Texas voters into reelecting him, Ted Cruz. His real name is Rafael Eduardo Cruz. And he said it was an insurrection. So, I, you know, I mean, these people are so full of it, um, Max. And I'll tell you, when I'm listening to the arguments here, yeah, everyone's talking off-ramps, all these funny words and all that, right? No, what they're saying is we don't give a shit and I'm not talking about all the justices, I'm talking about the Republican ones for sure, is, oh, we're not going to decide an election because we're too damn afraid to see what would happen if we actually follow the fucking textual, uh, literal Constitution, which says that dude, uh, I won't say anything what would have happened to him back in the day, but at the very least should already be in prison. What was so incredible to me that I that I saw about it, I mean, you're absolutely right. And you're right on your first point. The, the attorney for Colorado, I think, was making his case as much for a, a broader national audience as he was for the court, because those those six Republicans could have just come down and said, we hate you. We, we just want you to know that at the start. <laughs> I mean, they, they did not give him an inch to make his case. And no. And yet, you know, it, it is fascinating to me that 
these same Republicans that are willing to do this are, are so shocked that the Supreme Court is at record low levels of trust among voters. As if we can't see what's happening, it really does you know, show you the danger of a lifetime appointment. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, if we can just do our job, I hope to goodness that we make sure that Donald bin Laden does not get anywhere near the White House again. And we get these majorities going and people, voters, you know, because by the way, Max, they always say we're divided. We're not divided. We're damn near 60 percent of the voting electorate. That's not divided. OK, divided 50 50. And, and by the way, a lot of the Republican voters aren't down with all this stuff, but they don't pay attention. And a lot of our voters don't pay attention. You have to pay attention, people, in this kind of American democracy is on the line. It is serious. Code red. It, you have to get out there and make sure that this guy and a lot of other Republicans and, uh, do not get near the levers of power because you see what they do with it. They don't like democracy. They don't like one person, one vote. They don't like black people having a vote. They don't like brown people having a vote. They don't like women having any rights. So let's. Nah, I couldn't agree with you more, Sean. Thanks, brother. I, I couldn't. I re, and I appreciate your call. Sean's absolutely right. He made a good point there that I skipped over, though. Uh, talking about how they're, the justice has said, you know, how can the Supreme Court watch the videos of the insurrection and then just say it's an insurrection when no court has made a decision on that? What are you talking about, Amy Coney Barrett? First off, that's completely wrong. Colorado Supreme Court did a bunch of original fact-finding and issued a judgment based on their legal reasoning. That's a court that researched and found Donald Trump had committed insurrection, at least enough so to be thrown out. But we'll talk more about this and a bunch more stuff that's cooking. We have to take a quick break right now. When we get back, more of your calls at 866-997-4748. You're listening to Progress. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to Progress, folks. I'm Max Burns sitting in for John Fugel saying tonight as he's off saving the world somewhere else. Man, the first chunk of that show blew by. I mean, we were right in the middle of SCOTUS. We haven't even chatted about special counsel stuff yet, but I'm looking forward to doing that in just a minute here. And I'll tell you what, I'm excited because I get to sit down with my first guest. He's a guy I've had on a bunch of times for his unique perspective on the issues. And I'm really curious to dig into immigration and now everything else with him. 
Joe Walsh is a former Tea Party Republican congressman from Illinois, who's also emerged as one of the most self-reflective and I think sharpest critics of what the GOP's become under Donald Trump. He's also a guy who keeps his finger on the pulse of the nation. As a congressman, he held more town hall meetings with voters than anyone else. We don't always agree, but I always come away learning something. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, Max, it's mutual. Every time I speak with you, I learn something. Every time we talk, it seems that the world goes crazy. We have to be careful about this. <laughs> I want to jump into the immigration mess here. We saw earlier this week, Wednesday night, that the border bill went down in flames. Is this any surprise to you that in the end it was Republicans who dragged down their own bill? Uh, no, none at all. Trump didn't want it. Uh, my former party is a cult. He's the cult leader, so he gets what he wants. End of story. That's the easy part. But but the hard part, Max, and you and I may disagree on this, I don't think the Republicans scuttling this bill is going to hurt them. I think this issue will hurt Democrats. I think Democrats have ignored the issue of the border for three years. They've ignored it until Democratic mayors in blue cities started to scream about it. So I kind of think that cake is baked. I think it's going to hurt Biden and the Democrats. Really? See, I, I'm torn. I know we disagree a bit on this, but immigration generally, it's been one of those issues that there's just been no political will to address. I mean, the last serious effort was a decade ago. Do you think, in light of this very public collapse, that voters will punish Republicans for letting the opportunity go? Or how do they how are they calculating this? You know, I, I don't think so, Max. And, and may, life's not fair. Again, this is a purely cynical political thing, what Republicans have done to not even work on the border because Trump doesn't want them to. I get all of that. And we've talked before, Republicans uh, have always demagogued the border. I have done a lot of demagoguing of the border. But the polling shows that most voters, not just Republicans, believe Trump is way better to handle the border than Biden. And I think the reason for that is because this is an issue that divides the Democratic coalition. And yep. Biden and the Democrats for three years really have ignored the border. And that's a problem. Now, I, I've got to mention, since you, you mentioned this, uh, one of my memories, one of my last memories working in the House was of you speaking on the floor. And I, I remember very well you had, you famously yeah. had the alligator, the toy alligator, and you were talking about building a moat, an alligator-filled moat along the southern border. So you've had your own journey on this. What prompted you to, to rethink your own positions on this? Well, it's, it's interesting, Max. And that again, that was me just making a point because Obama said that Republicans weren't serious about dealing with the border. And I said, OK, you want to be serious? Here's, here's an alligator. Let's fill the border up with a moat with alligators. I, I haven't changed on the issue in this regard. I've always been be really tough on illegal immigration and dramatically expand legal immigration. And. I often haven't had a home with that philosophy because my former party, the Republican Party, talks tough about illegal immigration, 
But Republicans don't want to increase legal immigration. Democrats yep. are right in wanting to increase legal, but they've never paid enough attention to the border. I, I want both. No, I, I agree with that. I think the border is has become this fixation with Republicans. They don't so much care that you could close the border right now. There will still be 13 million undocumented migrants in this country, yes. uh, over 150,000 asylum seekers here in New York. They don't go away, even if you win on closing the border. And I've never heard a Republican plan pass that that deals with how do we manage and integrate and fix the process for these people who are here. Max, it's a great point. And again, it's where I differ with my former party that's become a very nationalistic build a wall party. This country needs immigrants. We need to make legal immigration easier. We need to welcome as many immigrants as we can. And to your point, and this is one area where I've changed on this issue, we've got the 13 million people in this country illegally. We've got the dreamers. We've got all of this. There needs to be a process for them. There needs to be a pathway to citizenship for them. And I've never always felt that. And that's that's somewhere where Republicans never want to go. Yeah. And it is is remarkable how seemingly close we once were on this issue. And now it is it, it's impossible. But I notice Democrats now starting to talk a lot more like the Republicans are on this, especially on this border security issue. I don't think many people imagine we'd see Joe Biden talking about shutting down the southern border. But here we are. I mean, do you see Biden's puff on the border, this new language playing into the 24 race the way that he expects it to? If I had his ear, Max, if I were advising Biden, I, and I've said this now for a few weeks, I'd have him come out and say, screw you, Republicans. Uh, forget about border legislation. Just give me aid to Ukraine and Israel. Forget about border legislation because you guys aren't serious. You're too political. I will use my own authority right now to address the crisis at the border. I think if Biden, and by the way, there are talks that he still may do that, Max, now. Biden yep. may aggressively use his executive authority at the border. I think that's the right thing to do. And I think it's really smart politically. He'll get crap from his left wing base. But man, most Americans are concerned about this now. It would be a great move by him. And it does seem like that's the calculus here. I mean, there was a poll out recently that six in 10 wing state voters blame Joe Biden for the migrant crisis. And whether or not that is factually true, that is certainly a very hard set opinion among people. But I, I'm curious, though, if then if that's not the pathway forward in mimicking Republicans and doing this, uh, what is the pathway? Does it hurt Republicans at all if Joe Biden takes executive action starts addressing the border, and then they look like the party that walked away from their big issue? Oh, I, I Max, I completely agree. I, I wish, I hope Biden does that. I hope Biden hijacks this issue. Because let's be real, uh, we need to dramatically reform our immigration process, no doubt. But right now, we have a dramatic crisis at the border. Um, the president has the authority to do a hell of a lot about that. I think he should do it. If Joe Biden just campaigns, Max, and says, 
Republicans uh, uh, scuttled this legislation, this bill, uh, bad on them, bad on Trump. That's not nearly enough. But if Biden actually acts on his own on the border and helps alleviate this crisis, then the Republicans look like absolute babies. That would be a great thing for him to do. I absolutely agree. I mean, I think there certainly is a motivation here for action. It seems like the base, he doesn't seem to be afraid of alienating his left. He's been pretty unapologetic about this. And for the most part, with the exception of, of a couple people this week who have started speaking up, you haven't seen a lot of pushback. Uh, if you're just joining us, this is Tell Me Everything with John Fugel saying on Sirius XM Progress. And I'm Max Burns talking immigration and everything else with my guest, former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh. Now, I was going to keep talking about immigration, but I just can't. I've got to know your thoughts on this wild special counsel report and what you think it means for Biden politically. I uh, The only issue that matters, Max, to me is Donald Trump can never, ever be in the White House again. Right now, Joe Biden's the only guy, person who can keep him out of the White House. So the only thing out of this special counsel report that concerns me is what the, the special counsel said and uh, about Biden's age and Biden's memory. This will be the only takeaway from this report, sadly. And, and you know what, Max? For all we know, this was a Republican special counsel. Maybe this is a partisan, a gratuitous uh, attack on Biden's memory and age, but it's real. And it's it's the elephant in the room. And to me, if Joe Biden, Max, doesn't aggressively address the age issue, I mean it, he's going to lose to a psychopath who is an absolute threat to our democracy. He's got to address this age issue. And it certainly seems like Joe Biden wants this to be the end. They said the investigation's done. I'm exonerated. We have a clip of Joe Biden speaking earlier today. It's uh, A5. This was an exhaustive investigation going back literally more than 40 years, 40 years when I became a United States senator when I was a kid. <laughs> I was a kid, 29 years old. <laughs> Special counsel acknowledged I cooperated completely. I did not throw up any roadblocks. I sought no delays. In fact, I was so determined to give special counsel what they needed. I went forward with a five-hour in-person interview over the two days of October the 9th, 8th and 9th last year, even though Israel had just been attacked by Hamas on the 7th. So Joe Biden says this is done. The problem is it doesn't seem to be done. In that five-hour interview he talked about, that's where the, the special counsel said he couldn't remember the year his son, Bo, had died. He couldn't remember the years when he began or left the vice presidency. And I don't know if that is correct, but it certainly paints a picture that Republicans have tried to reinforce Joe Biden as senile. I mean, how, how would you address this if this were you in this case? And I don't know, Max, like I watched that press conference, too, and I wish I wish Joe Biden would slow down and not shout so much and just take his time and just relax and be real. Um, look, 
I, I wish also, Max, Joe Biden had apologized. He did wrong when it came to these classified documents. I don't like that he blamed his staff. It happened on my watch. I, I, I apologize. There was it was right to be an investigation. I should have been better. And then put out the clear differences between him and Trump because Biden fully cooperated. Donald Trump obstructed justice, tried to cover up, tried to hide the documents, all the rest. But then again, the, the big thing here is the age issue. And it's not just an issue with Fox News watching Republicans. Independents and Democrats are concerned about this. You can't ignore it. I was on CNN earlier today, uh, Max, with a Democratic consultant. And, and uh, she said, oh, Joe Biden should pivot and talk about the economy and this and that. And I said, no, Joe Biden needs to look the American people in the eyes and say, you know what? I'm older and it sucks. I forget stuff. I, I need a nap or two every day. This is hard. But you know what? I'm doing a great job. We've done great things. I'll defend American democracy till my last breath, and Donald Trump won't. Biden needs to embrace this age issue. He can't ignore it. And you actually touched on one of the points that has been totally overlooked in this is in the actual report, the special counsel says, and this is a direct quote, most notably, and this is in, in highlighting the differences between yeah. Joe Biden's handling and Donald Trump. He said, most notably, after being given multiple chances to return classified documents, Mr. Trump allegedly did the opposite. He refused to return the documents for many months, but he also obstructed justice by enlisting others to destroy evidence and then to lie about it. In contrast, Mr. Biden turned in classified documents to the archives and the Department of Justice, consented to the search of multiple locations, sat for an interview, and in other ways cooperated. End quote. That, to me, seems like the story. And yet, the, if you turn on the media, it's now another discussion about, is Joe Biden senile? Well, and, and that's an interesting point, Max. And again, it's political inside baseball that will not help Team Biden to talk about why this Republican special counsel put all that stuff about Biden's memory in this report. Uh, I, I've heard enough of legal experts who said that was uncalled for. Well, fine. But you know what? That doesn't matter. And the American people aren't going to understand it. It's there. So now it needs to be addressed. I think you're right in that in a very calm fashion, Joe Biden should have spelled out the difference between a guy like him who fully cooperated with the investigation and a guy like Trump who covered up and obstructed the investigation. But then after that, Biden needs to get to the age issue and talk about the age issue every single day and embrace it. We all have a parent or a grandparent like Joe Biden. We all relate. He should just be relatable. I think that's great advice. I mean, in a country that is certainly not as young as it once was, I do think there is among the beltway this fear of talking about this as if people don't understand that, as if they aren't caring for aging parents, if they aren't aging themselves. There is, if there's one thing I've learned about American voters, a great deal of understanding in them. For hey, Max. Things that, yes. Let me ask you a question, because this is your world, Mr. Communications. <laughs> oh, no, Biden this is terrifying. 
No, if Joe Biden came out in front of the American people and gave a speech like that, that said, you know what, it's tough getting old and I'm old and I forget stuff and I forget names. And I'm going to tell you a little secret, America. I need two 30 minute naps a day. But boom, boom, boom. I'm doing this and we're doing that. If Biden gave a speech like that and was that honest, how would America receive it? I would skip the naps. I would I would cut that part. But the rest is, is basically, I mean, we act like this is, is completely untested territory, but it's not. I mean, one of the most defining moments of Ronald Reagan's campaign was I won't make my yeah. I won't make age an issue in this campaign. And I won't exploit my opponent's youth and inexperience. Yep. I mean, these there are ways to handle these questions that defang the issue. I think the challenge is Biden's people just are afraid to do it. Honestly. And and their instinct is to hide him and keep him away. And that is only going to grow this elephant in the room. And again, my only objective, Max, is I don't want that insurrectionist in the White House again. And right now, Biden's the only game in town, and I don't think it's changing. He has one big problem. The American people are concerned that he's not up to the job. So he has, and by the way, Max, only he can show the American people he's up to the job. A, a campaign commercial, a campaign surrogate can't do that. They need to see that he's vital. I think, and that takes getting out there. I mean, that takes getting out there and talking about the economy, talking about this record legislative work. And I want to ask you about that as well. I'm going to ask you to predict the future on two things. One, does is Joe Biden reelected in November at this at this point, knowing what we know? And two, is there any chance, given all this, that Biden gets an actual border bill on his desk before Election Day? Well, that's easy. No on the second. And I believe that Joe Biden will, in fact, more aggressively uses executive authority on the border, but there's no legislation coming down the pike. Um, uh, Max, I can't tell a lie. I, again, I've said this to you before. I'm older than you and I'm a dark Irishman. If the election's held tomorrow, Trump wins. Um, I think Biden could turn it around. Uh, but, but right now, it's just not better than 50-50. Well, that is uh, not the not the boost I hoped for, but I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> Joe, it is always a pleasure having you out with us, especially when we're dealing with all of this stuff. We've completely run through the time. But before I let you go, let our listeners know how they can find you and hear more of what you have to say. Uh, thank you, Max. You do great work. Keep doing what you're doing. Follow me on Twitter at Walsh Freedom. I have a podcast out there called White Flag with Joe Walsh. Check it out. Max, thank you, my friend. Thank you. That was my guest, former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh. When we get back, we're going to wrap up the hour with your calls at 866-997-4748. Keep it tuned to progress. We're back right after this. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Tell Me Everything, right here on Progress. Now, I don't mean to jump in on your music. I love the music too, but I want to dive right into my next conversation. So I'm going to skip all the pleasantries. My next guest is Jared Yates Sexton. He's a political commentator and author you know from his book, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis, and also from his substack, Dispatches from a Collapsing State. Jared, it is always great to have you here. How are you? Max, my friend, it's always a good time to talk, even though everything is really, really rough, but it's good to speak. And where are you? Listen <laughs> so, on what you're what you're up to lately. So I'm currently in Iowa right now in an undisclosed location. Uh, I'm getting ready to do some organizing and talk to some people about what's been going on with conspiracy theories, the stuff that the Heritage Foundation and all these right wing think tanks have cooked up. So we're trying to do the do the hard work in the red states. Boots on the ground. This is proof that political commentators do actually sometimes do the work. It's refreshing to see. Well, you know, otherwise you're going to stay at home and tear out all of your hair. I mean, those are those are the options at this point. I'm well on the way. And part of that is your fault. I've been reading your blog and uh, your Substack, And you have talked a lot about democracy and the threats democracy is under. So how do you process a day like today where the Supreme Court basically from the beginning of this Colorado case said, you know what, we think Trump won, doesn't really matter what you say. You know, historically, one of the things I've had to do in order to try and quell anxiety and fear is to sort of look through history and and see how the, the, the precedents have been there. I mean, the Supreme Court has been a rotten institution almost from the very beginning. The moments where it's actually upheld the rights of people or it's done the, the, the real just thing have been few and far between. But you can look at history and see a moment like this and say, wow, this is actually a great injustice. This is actually a moment in which the Supreme Court is corrupted, is rotten through and through. We can see what needs to happen happen, where we need to go. And something like this, it's dispiriting, it's disgusting, it's upsetting. But I think long-term wise, we need to keep our eye on the ball in terms of where we're going as opposed to, uh, you know, falling to a dispiriting uh, unquietness. I, I think we, we have to look at the longer picture at this point. And you've talked a lot about that. You've really summed up a lot of what I'm feeling in your piece that was published uh, yesterday, the day before. Uh, everything we were taught about politics is wrong. And you describe a lot of this political chaos as sort of our accepted social reality coming unglued before our eyes. Talk a bit about what you mean. Yeah, there's a lot to get into there, but uh, to go ahead and give the the quicker summation, you know, we we everyone will say we're living in unprecedented times. There's a lot of precedent for this, and whenever uh, countries like the United States start to go into decline, especially hegemonic countries like the United States start to go into decline, things get wonky, things get really really weird very quickly. And as people start to realize that something's wrong, and that uh, the leaders we used to rely on, the entrenched power that we used to have faith in, even the mythologies and the stories that used to give us meaning and purpose and drive, 
once we start realizing that those things aren't necessarily there to protect us or they're not working anymore, you start looking for a lot of different solutions. Some people's some people find it in cults. They find it in fascism. Other people start realizing, wow, these have been mythologies and, and untruths for a long time. And basically the story of America that we've been told wasn't real. It was a fairy tale. It was a mythology that was meant to sort of lull us into a false sense of comfort. And when you start to realize that, you can actually start to do the hard work and actually push towards something better, which I that's one of the reasons I'm optimistic now, but it doesn't mean that it isn't a tense, terrifying time. You're bringing out the former semiotics professor in me with this, because I, I love this idea. I think it's completely correct. So what, for, for listeners who may not be that familiar, what sort of is an example of the old mythology? And then what is the new one that's replacing it? And how is that that creating this sort of conflict in the culture? Well, the easiest way to get to it is, uh, of course, the American dream. The idea that America is a country that is always getting better, it's always pushing forward, everyone's life is always improving over the past generations. And that also encompasses the idea of the meritocracy, the idea that if you work hard and if you are really talented, you will rise to the top. And as a result, you know, this is an old Greek myth, right? This is the noble lie that we've always heard about. And like, if you actually start looking at that, we know that that's not true. We know that entrenched power in this country has completely replicated itself and propagated itself going forward. And once you start to realize that, you have to find other solutions. And one of the problems we have right now is that the right wing knows that things aren't working. And as a result, they're putting forth a lot of solutions that are terrible. That's always what happens with fascism and authoritarianism. The problem is that moderates or liberals or however you kind of want to look at this, they're sort of left defending institutions that we all know don't work anymore and have been preferential for a long, long time. So it has sort of thrown us off and it's definitely pushed us towards the right now. I think that is a, a great way of, of summing it up is these were defending institutions that in some cases don't really deserve defending things that have not functioned in a long time. And everything does feel pretty postmodern right now. I mean, I'm wondering, and I'm glad I have you here to ask this, what do you think about Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? Because it feels like he's running a campaign that's basically saying, all your gods are lies, the system's a sham, elect me and we'll tear it down. And he doesn't know what to replace it with, but he's undeniably somewhat popular out there. Yeah, you know, whenever things get really weird, we have a lot of very strange cult leaders that sort of pop up. You know, there, there's a reason why in like the 1960s, 1970s, as the old order started to pass, you have a lot of people who start going into alternative communities and looking for, you know, people like a Charlie Manson. And and basically, they're looking for someone to speak to whatever they're feeling. Um, I was on my podcast, the Muckrake podcast earlier tonight, talking about this is a very vibes-based world, right? You don't have to have facts. You don't have to have like, you know, uh, real stats and figures behind you. If someone speaks to something that you feel is true, it doesn't matter if what they're saying is absolute nonsense or dangerous. You might follow them, you know, for uh, a lack of alternatives. Trump is the exact same way. It's simply feeding people this uh, sort of fantasy world that they can live in that feels right to them in, in the face of a world that definitely feels like it isn't right. And it isn't right. The, but that isn't the solution, of course. It's not Trumpism. It's not RFK Jr. or any of these charlatans. It needs to be something else. But those alternatives are few and far between right now. It really does seem like Trump and Kennedy both appeal to this willingness among Americans now to consider essentially alternatives to democracy. And we see in a lot of polls now that fewer Americans today believe democracy is the best system of government than did 30 years ago. I mean, are people right? And what does that mean for us? I mean, what do you, 
how do you correct that kind of thinking? Yeah, you know, when you start getting into that and you get in the weeds, and by the way, Max, this is one of the reasons why you're one of my favorite people out there. We can have this conversation. You know, liberal democracy itself is is not perfect in the form that it is. We, we've seen that this is a hierarchical system. We see that there's a ton of uh, patriarchy, there's racism, there's sexism, there's classism, there's xenophobia riven, riven through it. You can make that better. You don't have to tear it down to the studs and replace it with fascism, which is what always happens when people lose faith in liberal democracy. But, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of like relatives that I have that whenever they weren't able to pay their medical bills or get health insurance or go to a doctor, all of a sudden they're talking about everything from crystals to alternative cures and diets, right? They're starving for something different. But in truth, you can get there a lot faster by simply talking about reform and progress. And if you start having those conversations, you can move things forward as opposed to saying, hey, 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 everything's fine, which is, and you and I both know this, essentially a conservative principle. And that's yep. what we're dealing with right now. We're dealing with far-right neo-fascism and conservatism. And those are the two options right now. And that that isn't a great option at all. That is, that is not. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to SiriusXM Progress and my guest, author and political commentator, Jared Yates Sexton. And, you know, I think that is, is a fascinating point there, that these alternatives, they're, they're not only terrible, everyone seems to recognize they're terrible. And when Biden campaigned in 2020, he really positioned himself as a return to normalcy. And everybody sort of defined that their own way. But we still feel a really long way off from that. Is there actually any kind of realistic path back to what most of us would consider normal? You know, I'll be honest with you, and I, I, I've always put scare quotes around the word normal, right? Because you don't get to Trump without things being very wrong for a long time. Yep. Um, I, I always make sure to let people know, I, I say this phrase constantly, Trump is a symptom, he is not the disease. And, you know, he is what a sick culture belches up. And this whole thing, like in order to go back to quote unquote normal, we would have to go back a half century. We would have to go back before the ravages of neoliberalism, before trillions of dollars were redistributed from the working and middle class to the wealthiest few. And even before that, we would have to go back to a New Deal consensus where we believe the government had a responsibility to not only take care of its citizens to an extent, but to make sure that monopolies didn't run everything and that regulation made sure that we had a safe world to live. In. That normal that we've been promised, it people like to believe it's 2015. Well, the problems that created the possibility of MAGA were there in 2015 and they were at a mm -hmm. boil. We can't just pretend like Trump's the problem. If we get by him, everything will be fine. There's a lot of other work that we have to do. And simply pretending like that isn't the case is only going to make it worse. And you talk a lot about that sort of deep-rooted nature of the problem. As you mentioned in the Substack piece, one of the big issues is that the GOP, the other, you know, one of two major parties in this country has changed into a body that doesn't really care about elections or voting or the democratic process anymore. So if that transformation is going to continue, and it looks like it will, uh, what is the actual long-term solution to ensuring that doesn't erode the entire system and just destroy the system? 
Well, what we have to take a look at are the material conditions that have created this situation. People are absolutely right when they say that they feel like America is not going in the right direction or America is in decline. These are actual things. These are feelings that uh, are, are born out based in historic inequality, what the economy is doing, voting rights, opportunities, you name it. Like we have had a, an oligarchical system in which people who aren't even all that talented see Elon Musk have risen to the top and basically been able to take over like tech robber barons, you know, this isn't right. We know that it's not right. We need to have a robust federal government. We need to have a government that isn't owned by all of these special interests and all of this entrenched wealth and all this accumulated capital. Meanwhile, people say to me, and I'm sure they say to you, they're like, do you think Donald Trump can even win the Electoral College? Well, I'm not, you know, so young. I remember the election of 2000 in which a Republican Party mm -hmm. that was even like not even at this stage of anti-democracy stole a presidential election. I watched it happen. You know, I tuned into the news and saw it happen in front of my very eyes. Yeah. They're not interested in winning elections. They are historically unpopular. They are looking to gain power by any means possible and then destroy liberal democracy as an impediment to losing that power. What we have to look at are the material conditions that created this situation and start to answer those. And Joe Biden and any other Democrat, I don't care who it is, you have to give people an answer to what's next. Because where we're at right now doesn't work. And that's the problem that the Democratic Party has. There's no vision for the future. There's no bridge into what it could be. We're simply trying to protect what has been. Yeah, no, that is that is an excellent point. And I think it's one of these challenges of this era is it's a place you don't want to linger in too long. It's very unpleasant. But I, I'd love to get your thoughts a little on the, the immigration border bill, what that says about all this. Because I have an operating theory. Maybe I give Republicans too much credit that the reason this failed is because government in the Republican ideology now cannot be seen to solve a big structural problem like the border. Because if you admit that government can do it, then you have to also admit that you've been lying the whole time, that these aren't insolvable problems you just don't want to solve. Maybe I'm crazy. I'd love to know your thoughts. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, especially when Republicans are outside of power, you can't believe the government can do anything. You know, it's it's actually very interesting the way that it's work. Um, you brought up postmodernism a while ago. And if it wasn't so gross and disgusting and dangerous, you would almost have to admire the postmodern flavor of this. When you are in power, you believe in running up deficits, large muscular government, you know, a government that goes into everybody's bedrooms and everyone's lives. When you're out of government, you believe in small government, you know, shrinking deficits, you name it. And that sort of back and forth, that subjectivity is something that the Republican Party and its base has figured out in an incredible way. I'm going to say something that um, I couldn't say anywhere else. Like, I'm not going to be able to go on cable news and say this. Nobody in power wants to solve the border crisis. America's economy absolutely relies on exploiting uh, vulnerable labor from the border. You know, bringing people in that you do not have to pay minimum wage, you don't have to pay them uh, benefits. And on top of that, you know, if they really want to push back, you can threaten to call ICE on them. And especially the Republican Party, their voter base does not want to close the border. What do they want? They want displays of cruelty to create a permanent underclass in immigrants. So they're looking for all of these ways to sort of instill fear and, you know, sort of sate their bases, uh, sadism, but they're not interested in dealing with the border. They're not interested in the 
government doing anything. And in fact, the donors who basically run the Republican Party aren't interested in the federal government doing anything besides bailing out businesses and passing tax cuts and deregulating. And that's it. Nothing else that they do is actually ever in, in a position of trying to make the government do anything. That will change. They are trying to go ahead and, and say the government can't do anything. There has to be some sort of a massive overhaul and illiberalism, you know, a Hungarian style of liberalism. Mm -hmm. But uh, as of right now, no, they're not interested in solving any problems. And as you point out, I mean, the sad fact is a lot of corporate Democrats are not either. A lot of these people are being funded by the exact same people. And we wonder why they continue to disappoint us. But I know it can be tempting to look at all this from 30,000 feet and sort of watch the tectonic plates of democracy hit each other. But what questions do you think pundits like me aren't asking about this that we really should be asking? Well, you know, I, I think the, the questions that need to be asked right now are, what are the alternatives to what we have had? And and we we see you know whether it's the New York Times or the Washington Post and and you were talking about corporate Democrats I, I think the Democratic uh, Leadership Council one of the problems that you had was this old idea of reality based politics right you have to meet America where it is well that's not true that's if you want to lower expectations that's if you want to say hey I really want to change things but I can't do anything we need to have discussions about what could be you know, and what should be instead of, well, right now people don't have an appetite for that. There need to be larger risks. There need to be big programs. There need to be things that are unexpected that change paradigms and, and, and make people feel like something is happening or something is shifting because continuing to go down this road the way we are, I think the tectonic plates is a great point the way you put that. Like, it's just going to continue to create earthquakes and, you know, volcano eruptions. You have to literally sort of uh, change this. You have to change the terrain in order to make something else happen. And we've gotten way too comfortable with the way things have been. And it's it's time for a major change. And what frustrates me, I think, so much as a progressive is that it felt in a lot of ways that 2016 was like the turn of the 20th century, where there was this moment where Americans were questioning the systems and willing to gamble big on big ideas. You had Bernie on the left, you had Trump on the right. And I feel like the Democrats essentially prevented that conversation from happening. The Republicans went ahead and had it. They chose big ideas and see where we are. But I wonder how this country could have been different if Democrats had been more open to having that conversation at the time. Maybe the alternative we came up with would have been more appealing than what Trump offered. I think it's a really fearful situation. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed since 2016, I think it's one of the biggest hinge points in modern American history, beyond a doubt. Like there, there is a moment and I see it now. It's like anytime you try and talk about a way a thing could be different, everyone says, hey, we just have to be Trump. You know, don't take any big chances. Just play it safe. We've got to get past Trump. And as a result, I, I think you're right. There was that moment that was ripe for that. I think there was an opportunity to have these big giant conversations because people recognized that something wasn't working and could be changed. But that being said, you know, I've studied throughout history when these major movements and changes occur, these sea changes, we don't see them coming. You know, like they 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 sort of uh, build up and build up sort of in an imperceptible way. And then you look up and you you realize you they were totally unexpected but uh, inevitable. 
you know, and, and I think that's coming. I think we we sort of see tomorrow the way that we see today. And that's why a lot of people feel like this is a, a nihilistic sort of a, a march here. But I, I do think things are going to change. But we have to start doing the business of figuring out what that's going to be so we can meet that moment when it gets here. And you're on the ground in Iowa now doing that. I mean, we've talked a lot about heavy stuff and pretty doom and gloom estimations of democracy. But what's out there giving you hope, Jared? We know the conversations I keep having with people. First of all, you know, people are demoralized and they're tired. They've been under a constant attack by people who are wielding billions of dollars and some of the strongest apparatuses we've ever seen. But Max, the one thing that changes every conversation that I have is when we stop talking about the way things are and we start saying to people, what is the future you deserve? And I cannot tell you how many people I've seen cry over this because we have been taught we can't have that. We don't deserve that. We need to ask for less. We actually bargain ourselves down, you know, and it's yep. part of the trauma of our politics and our economics. But when you start saying, what do we deserve? And you start talking about you deserve this, you deserve that, not how should our enemy suffer or how should we divvy up the pieces of the pie that exist? You start talking about what our children deserve, what our neighbors deserve, our communities deserve. All of a sudden, you know, that imagination, that aspiration, all of that changes and you start to see people people changing, you start to see energy growing. And that's why I get excited is because I think people are finally starting to look up and realize we deserve so much better than what we have right now. I think that's that's something that a lot of, I feel so, so many Americans are still in a trauma response here yes. that I think they've just lost sight of that. I mean, it, it is a country that seems to have lost a lot of its self-respect after four years of Trump, which is understandable, but there's nobody on the democratic side Puffing, puffing the country back up in that way, in the kind of way that that I think we're talking about in a progressive sense. But I this is this is always a fascinating conversation. We are practically out of time, but I want to know, Jared, what you're working on. Tell listeners where they can find you, read more of your stuff, because we got to get you out here more. Everybody should be reading you. Well, uh, the Substack is Dispatches from a Collapsing State. Uh, you can listen to my podcast, The Muckrake Podcast. I'm currently working on a book talking about how this uh, democratic crisis is also a mental health crisis and getting into that and how we can fix that. But yeah, this is great. Always coming on, Max. I always appreciate you. Always appreciate the conversation. At some point, we're going to have good news to talk about, and we'll be able to look at this hopefully in a past tense. But for now, I appreciate you doing the hard work of recording the damage. Well, I'm so glad you're out there and it emboldens me every time. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jared. Always a pleasure. That was my guest, author and commentator, Jared Yates Sexton. Go check out his book, The Midnight Kingdom. It's a really clear-eyed look at our current national crisis. And give us a call at 866-997-4748. Let me know what you thought. That's 866-997-GRIT. We're going to take a break here, but when we get back, lots more of your calls and much more ahead on progress. Stick around. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. 
on Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the show, folks. I'm your guest host, Max Burns, sitting in for John Fugelsang tonight. And I can't think of a better way to fire you all up than to welcome my next guest, the intrepid political journalist and host of Just Ask the Question podcast, Mr. Brian Karam. And by the way, if you are on the line, stick around. I, I need to get more answers on whether Joe Biden's too old or not. We're currently tied three to three. And if I'm going to send this napkin to the White House, we need to have a definitive result. Brian, I want to thank you so much for sitting down with me. I'm clearly losing my mind. I think intrepid <laughs> journalist suits you. You certainly faced down some interesting times recently. Yeah, it's always fun. I'll say that. <laughs> I, I, I gripe, but who'd listen? <laughs> so what are you making of all of this special counsel stuff? It seems like the big news that, that Joe Biden's been exonerated completely is totally lost in this sort of fan fiction, I guess, Robert Hur was writing. It's it, what's frustrating about it is, look, Biden and, and Trump are basically the same age, more or less. And of the two, it's Donald Trump who has the bigger problem is with mental acuity, not mm -hmm. Joe Biden. Uh, but here's the problem. Here's tonight's uh, press. Well, and I can't really call it a conference. It was he took less than 10, fewer than 10 questions. It was before the pool. It wasn't before the full press. But. He was fiery, he was combative, but he was never abusive or or a bully like Trump was. And he pushed back against that narrative. The problem is it persists because while, at, while on the one hand showcasing uh, Biden's strengths, it also showcased one of the weaknesses of the Biden administration, is, and that is they don't put him out there often enough. Now, you compare him to anybody else in that administration who speaks for him, and it's obvious that Joe Biden is the better communicator. He's the better speaker. And, you know, he made some very salient points tonight when when one reporter, you know, said well, you, that you're getting too old and and the Democrats are talking. But he goes, no, that's your judgment. That's not the press. That's your judgment. And he's right. It was an opinion that was uh, poised as a question that it, it, it highlighted our inadequacies as reporters. Now, I know a lot of people say, hey, you all were screaming at him tonight. And well, get over it. We scream at all the presidents. That's just the way we work. That's not that that's no uh, slap against us. What was um, discouraging was to see the lack of substantive questions asked from Joe Biden. And you could tell the part that I thought was most poignant was when he was talking about the death of his son. And you could see his upper lip, man. He was just seething, but he kept his cool and he, and he answered the questions. And, uh, you know, you can't ask for more. I just know that if I have to compare the two and having covered both of them, uh, if I have to compare the two, there is no doubt that Joe Biden is far more capable mentally and physically than Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true. And as, as a lot of people have said tonight, you know, yes, both are old. Both have had slip ups. 
but only one of them is preaching fascism. Only yeah. one of them is offering to get rid of elections and just put his guys in. How this is is a comparison, I don't understand. But as someone who was in the room there with, with Biden in this moment, I'm curious what the response was from the, the press corps internally, if there is some understand some sense that this was weird the way that a special prosecutor opined essentially on a president's mental fitness far outside of his expertise, or if everyone's just eating this up. I mean, what have you experienced? Well, I, I, I said it straight. I, I, you know, just to set the record straight, I wasn't there tonight because it was limited to the pool and pre-credential media. And so there were very few people there, but that being said, yes, the problem is that we feed into this baloney because the simple fact of the matter is the press covering the president today is not the press that covered Trump or the press that covered, you know, other presidents. You have younger, inexperienced members of the press, and they are not um, they're, they're more worried about um, access. And then when they get it upon themselves to fire off at a president. It's not of substance. It's flash over substance. It's appearance versus reality. And right now, the appearance that uh, Trump and the Republican Party is trying to paint is that uh, Biden is uh, mentally incapable of doing his duty. And that's why you need Biden out in front of the press more often, because as he showed tonight, he's quite capable of handling the children in the press corps. And it does seem interesting to me that this is the big story, as we're witnessing really a, a historic collapse within the GOP. I mean, there's, this seems to be a fight now that has everything. You've got the Mayorkas impeachment failing, the border bill failing. Senators are gunning for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Some of the Freedom Caucus want to boot Mike Johnson out. How is this not a lead story in this political environment? Well, because the... It is a lead story in this political environment, but the simple fact of the matter is, is we're not doing our job. The press has failed. Um, and part of that is, as I've said often, there is a consolidation of the media. This is a, a large problem and it's a nuanced problem. And unless, you know, Joe Biden has talked about attacking um <laughs> monopolies well the biggest monopoly on the planet right now or this yeah i mean also an oligarchy but you know moving towards a true monopoly there's only six companies that uh sell us you know 95 percent of what we see reader here in in uh the journalistic world and i guarantee you none of them are, are liberals i mean there's you know there's less than 100 people sitting on these boards of directors in these six largest companies that are are responsible for everything we ingest and unless you break up the media monopolies and get better reporting and get more street reporting you get more people out there then we're going to continue to have this problem and that's and the american public doesn't understand it because there's no one left to tell them about it it's just the same people. So it's like you, the the question of the day is, hey, is Joe Biden mentally capable? So you get 38 reporters asking that question. And those with real, you know, who are, are responsible and have experience are not on the job and don't do it. It used to be you have to have 10 years of experience to get into, you know, even cover the White House. 
And now they, they'll hire you straight out of high school and college. And after you get out of college and, and cover it for a few years and you need to make some more money, they boot you out for somebody that's cheaper. That's the problem. No, it is. It is in the truest sense a race to the bottom. Then in terms of quality, oh, yeah. it's, it's a lot like the industry. And you mentioned, I want to dig into this. We share an industry, the wonderful world of journalism, at increasingly tough to survive in. We've been seeing this whole field rock. There were layoffs at Condé Nast, The Messenger, National Geographic, The LA Times, too many more to name, really. Is this weakened industry still up to the task of holding politicians accountable? And not just Donald no. Trump, but really anybody. No, we're not. We're not up to the task, only in very rare circumstances where you have people who have a decent amount of experience. Uh, for example, um, Reuters still has uh, people of experience. Jeff Mason asked one of the, uh, you know, and him, the give and take between him and, and President Biden tonight was amicable and, and professional. And yet Jeff asked important questions of the president. Those type of reporters are few and far between anymore. And until we dedicate ourselves to fixing our industry, it's going, con going to continue to unravel. And that race to the bottom that you're talking about, well, we're already at the bottom and we're digging out a new basement. Um, you know, it's not, it, it, it doesn't bode well. I mean, there are vast news deserts all across the country where there's not even a, a local newspaper and, or, or it's a hollowed out newspaper. And, you know, owned by a large uh, group that just wanted the real estate property and is slowly grinding down the staff and there's nothing left. So it's it's an interesting uh, uh, prospect. What do you do going forward? And until we deal with that, we're not going to get better. And that really is the core problem, especially on local news. When we ask how Republicans and even in some cases, Democrats abuse power so freely on those state and local level is because in most communities, there is no local paper. Uh, the AP said in 2023, 2.5 newspapers locally closed each week. And that's accelerated over the past year. So they both the pool of reporters is smaller and the coverage is more myopic to the beltway. But how do we address that? I mean, what is the path forward? Uh, break up the media monopolies, institute, uh, reinstitute the fairness doctrine, uh, strengthen the anti-slap legislation so rich people can't sue small newspapers if they don't like what they read. Break and in breaking up the media monopolies, force uh, you know allow more um, public uh, and nonprofits to take place in the in the business and support them with tax breaks. All of those things have to happen but it's not going to happen unless there is a president who will take it seriously but no one who's a, a politician wants to actually deal with that because the thing is is they don't they want to control the media all of them do and mm -hmm. so if you if you can control the media and use them to what your for your agenda why would you want to solve the problem you're a part of the problem and we're a part of the problem that's absolutely true. And I say this to people, I hate to burst a lot of political bubbles, but I have never had all the, the very lovely progressive Democrats that I've covered as a reporter. I have never seen them angrier than when I don't write what they tell me to write. I mean, it is a very control-based industry. And that's one of the reasons why these young cub reporters get snowed so often, why we're seeing so few real substantive scoops. I would argue it's just that lack of experience of knowing how to push back, being afraid to push back. 
Well, yeah, and doing real investigative reporting, which is the heart of all reporting. And um, we don't do much of that anymore. We we're not we don't have a we don't have the wherewithal to do it. We don't have the experience to do it. Nobody wants to invest in it. After all, investigative reporting isn't a profit. <laughs> you know, it doesn't bring you build your profit margin. It's what mm-hmm. you're supposed to do. And a long term, the long term benefits is are in credibility and in sustained readership, sustained viewership, because people trust you because they know that when they go to you, that that whatever you're going to say, it's from a point of delivering facts to the American public. And there's very few of us left, you know, that do that. And, that you know, and I get the same thing, you know, like if I write something, here's the difference, though, between the far left and the far right. If I write something that, you know, people on the left don't like, they'll call me an idiot. They'll call me. They'll say I'm full of it. Or they, you know, they say, I don't know what I'm talking about, but they don't automatically call me a Trumper. However, mm-hmm. if I write something that's anti-Trump, I'm automatically a liberal, libtard, commie, pig, you know, you name it. And I just I'm in it's either or with them. There is no nuance at all. And at least on the left, there's still there's still some nuance. They they still have the mental capacity to understand that just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean I'm automatically a friend of your enemy. And that's something that the cult can't with the cult. You're either in the cult or you're not. And we're seeing that that's the danger of that's the true danger of Donald Trump. I mean, Nikki Haley isn't even safe in the GOP. She's running against him and he's calling her a fascist and a commie and and a Democrat. No, she's a Republican who disagrees with him. That's how our country was built on the idea that we can disagree with one another, but we'll defend to death your right to say whatever it is. And they are in a cult that's Trump or nothing. And I would not be surprised when they go to Milwaukee for their national convention, if they rename the Republican party, the MAGA party and get it over with, because there's no one in that party anymore. That isn't a Donald Trump sycophant. You see it in Congress. You see you, you, why is Congress so dysfunctional? Look at who the the speaker of the house is, a complete moron. Look at Marjorie Taylor Greene, a complete moron. But they all owe their allegiance to Donald Trump. They yep. have no common sense. They have there there are no, you know, they tell you that the border is an emergency that must be solved immediately. So they come up with bipartisan legislation and the Trumpers go, "No, it's uh, you know, it's not that big of emergency we'll wait till donald's in and then we'll solve it it's only they they don't want to solve problems they want to cause them and give donald trump something to run on that's what they're about yeah if you're just joining me this is tell me everything on sirius xm progress and i'm talking to political reporter brian Karam about washington's absolutely unhinged week and you brought up trump <laughs> i was trying my best to avoid it but i'm really curious with all of this border stuff because we haven't had a real conversation about the border since the Gang of Eight in 2013. What does it say about the GOP now that Republicans can't even decide if they agree that strengthening the border matters? Well, what it tells you is that they don't want to solve problems. They want to cause them. They want to run on the problems and then claim that the problems are the fault of the Democrats. The border has been a problem. Look, in in 1984, I did a 10-part documentary series called Across the Broken Border. 
the Biden administration ha- in 2024 it has taken to using that term, the broken border. This is not a new problem. It has been a problem since the oil economy crashed in Mexico in the mid-70s. And all these people want is to be able to work and live. They're following the American dream, right? Now, the problems of drug dealing and fentanyl and human trafficking, those problems are also caused by us. Okay, if there were no demand for for the drugs, doesn't matter what the supply is, they wouldn't be able to supply it. The simple fact of the matter is, is we want the drugs and we're going to pay for them. So if you want to solve the problem on the border with illegal drugs, then what you're going to have to do is legalize drugs and treat it as a social problem and take the money out of it so that the gangs and the drug cartels don't make money. There's no way you're going to solve this problem unless you eliminate the demand, which you'll never do, or you make it too cheap to be, you know, a, a, a profit for the drug dealers. You know, if you want to talk about pure capitalism, there's no one who's more purely capitalistic than a drug dealer. So I always yeah. laugh when, you know, they're, they're going to sell you what they can for as cheap as they can. So I always laugh when they go building a wall will stop the drug flow. No, it won't. Look, your average drug dealer is not going to drive a ton of drugs to the Mexican border, the Mexican-U.S. border, the south border on the Rio Grande in the middle of nowhere, drop off the drugs into a skiff, push them across the river, put them in another uh, truck, and then send them you know, for distribution in the U.S. That takes too much time, it exposes yourself too much, and it ain't going to happen. What are they going to do? Well, in the past, they've paid off border patrolmen. they paid off... Uh, uh, drug, you know, uh, paid off uh, traffickers. The traffickers have paid off truckers. So when they're driving legitimate cargo across the uh, the uh, border, they'll hide it in large you know, eighteen wheelers. That's how it gets across. That's and so what you need to do is what the Biden administration and the Democrats and the Republicans in the Senate both agreed you need to do is to hire more border patrol and to open up the, the areas for inspection at the checkpoints and have more people checking what's coming across the border. And the Republicans don't want to do that. So, you know, they don't really want to solve the problem. They want to gripe about it and run on it and convince a lot of people who've never been to the border, don't live anywhere near it, that their biggest enemy are the poor people at the bottom of the, uh, you know, socioeconomic scale who are basically keeping the middle class afloat by making sure that you're not paying $10 for a tomato. Most of these people are migratory workers. They come across, they go back. There's a lot of that that's gone on for 40 years and we don't address the problem. We only yell about it and kick the can down the road to the next election. And it seems like now that we're not even hiding that. I mean, most Republicans, it seemed were totally fine to let Donald Trump kill this bill and to say, don't don't cross me or you'll pay for it. But the question I'm still trying to answer with my strategist cap is how do these Republicans, many of whom are in swing districts, very tight races this year, now go back to their districts and explain what just happened to voters who they've primed to think that this border is in immediate crisis? Well, that's a good question. How do you go back and explain in a swing state or in a you know that this is this is the problem? And here's the real problem about that. That could cost them in the election. But what they're looking at when the Republicans are not look or Donald Trump is looking 
no further than the seven swing states which might give him the election. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, and Minnesota. So everything that he's doing is to shore up his base and to appeal to the voters there. The problem is that Donald Trump lost $83.3 million in a recent uh, civil suit. Um, he's probably going to lose $400 million or more in New York. He's running out of cash. So what he's doing is appealing to that base so he can pay his bills and hopefully buy some advertising in those seven swing states and miraculously, if he can, pull out a win. But I, I am one that has said often, and I still maintain, that he may not even be on the ballot in November. And there's a good question. I mean, there are Democrats who are now worried about Biden for what, you know, being too old, and he may not be on the ballot. I don't know where this ends up in November. There are, you know, you, Max, you and I were just talking about how, you know, how crazy the week has been. How crazy has this day been? Just this one day. And imagine yeah. how many more of them are going to be like this before we get to November. You know, it's like George Carlin said at some point, he goes, I, I'm just sitting back with popcorn and beer watching the parade because it, you know, there's, it just is fascinating. And if you take it too seriously, you're going to go crazy. And that's, that's the God's honest truth. These are serious times. And it, it, we need people of, of serious mind to solve very serious problems, but we don't have it at least not in the Republican Party. And the circus is certainly getting unavoidably loud. If I can keep you for one more question, I really am dying to know if you saw any of Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin and the, the very odd nature of this two hour long odyssey and what you make of it. Well, you remember, the, did you ever see that the human centipede? I did. Okay, uh, Tucker Carlson is at the tail end of the human centipede, and he's merely ingesting all the crap from Vladimir, whatever it, Putin puts it in, craps it out, and and uh, Tucker Carlson swallows it and then spits it out. That's that's Tucker Carlson. Um, it was fascinating to me. It's it, what's scary about it are the number of Republicans that will eat that up that are friends of of Trump. And it's obvious at this point that, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson has a right, you know, as I've said, I may disagree with what you say, but we'll defend to death your right to say it. Tucker Carlson has every right to go and interview Putin. It's interesting that he did so. You should watch it if you haven't to get an insight as to how damn crazy the world is. But at the same time, I will say that Tucker Carlton is Putin's puppet or if I, as I prefer, the tail end of Putin's human centipede. Now, is this human centipede one, two, or three? Because this gets to be quite a long well, centipede there's Trump in, here. I think there's Putin at, at the head, Trump in the middle, and, and Tucker at the end. I like that. That's a good, that's good to have structure in this crazy world. <laughs> now, now, Brian, in the minute or so we have left, let, let people know what you're covering, what you think is on, on your radar that should be of note to people, and where they can learn more about what you're doing. Uh, you can catch me at salon.com. The name of the podcast is called Just Ask the Question, wherever fine podcasts are sold. And the name of uh, the book is called uh, Free the Press. It's in its uh, third printing. And I've been I'm covering the uh, race right now. And I think what we all should really be looking out for is a third party candidate and uh, and in the end, of course, how the trials will affect Donald Trump. 
Like I said, if you ever watched the old uh, Ed Sullivan show and saw the guy with all the spinning plates, that's what politics in the U.S. is right now. Don't let anyone convince you they know exactly what's going to happen in the fall because nobody does. That is the truest thing I've heard in a while. Brian, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure to have you on. Always a pleasure to be here, Max. Have a good one. You as well. 